the first thing I tell you is have a connection to the area. Like you can't just say, oh, I want to invest in Moscow because I saw it in a movie. You know, no, you, you have to invest in a place that you either go to frequently, like you've traveled there, you've been there multiple times, or you think about like maybe retiring there, or it's a place you want to, you go every year. That's the first thing. So find a place that you really love or frequent. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 255 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Nathan Amaral. Nathan has been a real estate investor and wholesaler for the past 15 years and is currently investing in other countries such as Uganda and Portugal. In this episode, Nathan will tell us how to start investing in other countries and he'll explain what to consider when investing abroad, such as the taxes, regulations, and financing options. He'll also talk about the differences in investing overseas versus investing here in the United States. So if you want to learn how to get started in investing in other countries, then you need to listen to this episode. And now, on to the show. All right, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself, let us know who you are, and tell us what you do. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Uh, good to be here. Um, yeah, been in real estate for about uh, 15 years. Uh, started off locally um, as a real estate investor, uh, wholesaler, flipping contracts. At that point in my life, I was just trying to do it just to make some extra money. I was working like two or three jobs, and then my ex-fiance's dad kind of pushed me into it. He, he asked me, he said, if you want to marry my daughter, you have to, uh, you have to read this book. <laughs> Any ideas what that book would be, Sean? Do you, do you have an idea poor dad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very nice. Exactly. He's like, he's like, if you read this book, you can marry my daughter. Anyway, I skimmed through it. And then he, when I brought it back to him, he asked me a bunch of questions. I had no answers to it. I didn't really read it. And uh, he's like, no, go back and read it if you're really serious. I did. And it really, it really kind of kick-started everything for me. I, unfortunately, I studied real estate for two years, meaning I just went to seminars, reading a lot more books for two years until I closed my first deal. Um, which I hired a coach to come out and help me. Um, and really all he did was, which I say it like it's so simple, but it actually can be the hardest thing for a lot of people, is he actually just helped me push me to make offers. He, it was my biggest fear. My biggest fear was what happens if they say yes to my offer. Yeah, so he pushed me to make 11 offers. And out of those 11, four got accepted and I closed on two, made around $18,000 on those two deals. And that's when real estate investing became reality for me. Um, so I closed my first two deals at the age of 20 and, uh, been doing it ever since. So, That's awesome. I mean, it's crazy that your yeah. biggest fear was the fear of them saying yes. Whereas most people was the fear of getting rejected and them saying no, because yeah. oh, your offer is too yeah. low or whatever that. Yeah, that, that's a good point you bring up. Um, yeah, I think I was so used to and comfortable with, you know, getting rejected because of, I was in direct sales. I was a struggling uh, salesperson in direct sales. So I was comfortable with the no, and I was comfortable with being that guy who just got rejected. It was okay for me. But for me, it was more of what do I do when they say yes to me? What's that process that takes place after what, what then, right. To turn, to turn the deal into a profit. That was, that was the, the kicker for me. That was really difficult. And so what was that solution? Like, what do you do after you get the property on a contract? So um, with that type of strategy I was doing at that time was as soon as you get under contract, you, I basically had a list of buyers that were ready to buy that particular type of property. I was finding properties that had problems like mold and burnout properties. And I had a list of about 60 investors 
that were looking for these kinds of properties all around the Massachusetts and Rhode Island area at that time. And uh, as soon as I found these properties, I would just let them know, call them up. Back then we had what was called e-fax, which is not too common right now, <laughs> but this is before email was popular. We, I had e-fax, so literally I faxed over the deal and that's how they called me back was on the, on the, the deal. They just called the number on the e-fax. And did you so, spend those first two years like learning, but also building out that list? Cause I mean, getting 60 buyers is pretty impressive. Well, yeah. So what I did was like I said, I was get, doing the door to door thing, uh, direct sales. I literally went to real estate agents and brokers, you know, brokerage houses. I went there, I went to insurance agents. I went to developers and I went door knocking. I just drove to their place. I walked in and introduced myself and said, look, you know, um, what kind of properties do you buy? How do you buy them? And I asked the buyers what they typically buy. That's so I built the buyers list first. That's what I did. But it was the fear of that stopped me from actually getting them the inventory that they needed. That fear was, st was stopping me from getting deals under contract. Yeah. So and what about for that first deal? Like, how did you have like the paperwork set up? Like what kind of contracts were you using to get that in a contract? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, basically I used contracts that my coach gave me. Um, he actually was doing already real estate for like 15, 20 years. I think it was closer to probably 20 years. He was an, an older guy and he, he basically gave me the contracts. He showed me where to pull the lists from, from these condemned properties, burnouts and whatnot. We made a few contacts. We made a few offers, made 11 offers. And uh, he's the one who really showed me how to fill out a contract. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I guess getting coaching is, is worth it. If, especially if you're, if you're stuck and you've been doing this for two years, spinning your tires, not getting anywhere. I, I think, I think what I've realized, I think what I've realized over the years um, and I've hired coaches for multiple things over the years. I think if you want to collapse speed, right. If you want speed, if you want to collapse time on itself, and you want to get there faster is you hire a coach to who's already done there, been there, done that, who's already done it. So you just hire them to say, Hey, don't do it this way. Do it this way. I think that's something I'll never forget. One thing my coach had at that time, he had this Blackberry that had GPS on it. And Sean, this is before phones had GPS on them. This is like the first piece of technology. And I, and I always, and I'll never forget that because a, a coach is someone who has experience or can show you the light and can give you tips and tricks and strategy. So on, I remember he's that he had never been to my area, but he typed in the address and went straight to the properties that we went to. So that was for me at that time, it was like cutting edge and it was new for me. Remember GPS was brand new on phones. So just having that again, your coach should have experience and tips and tricks that, that, you know, are, they should be more smarter than you, you know, with yeah, experience. There's also like a accountability piece to it. You know, like you can be as disciplined as you want, but if someone else is kind of looking over your shoulder and trying to you know, keeping you accountable, you actually do like the work. So true. Right. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It's so true. Like my, my coach gave me deadlines. You know, he said, you have a week to put out these 11 offers. Yeah. You have so many days to get this done. You had 15 days to, to sell the property. Everything was timed. And that accountability piece, you know, if you don't have account accountability, if you don't have met metrics, you don't know what your results are going to be. You need to have your, your metrics. You need to have your numbers. Yeah. And so after doing wholesaling for a couple of years, what do you transition into? Yeah. So um, it's interesting. I always felt like I was doing, I still wholesale properties. So these quick flip strategies, opportunities that I don't personally uh, buy, 
uh, I can turn it over to another investor. But I got into um, lease options, owner financing, rent to own properties. I got into apartments. I actually worked for a guy. I don't know if you ever heard of him. His name is David Lindahl out of Massachusetts. He owns like 8,000 apartments. You've heard of him? Yeah. So so what happened was uh, he came to my area, did a little presentation, and then he hired me to go work in his office. So I worked with Dave for three years and it was there I learned how to buy apartments. So I started partnering on deals for apartments instead of buying my own apartments. And so I got into the apartment business or the apartment niche, um, land, uh, a little bit of subdivisions. Most recently, probably in the past five to six years has been uh, a mixture of short-term rentals and uh, senior care. I just bought a senior care. um, I just bought a a large commercial uh, building with 26 apartments and 40 rooms and turned it into a senior care facility. Um, I don't run the senior care facility. Um, I just own the real estate that they're in. Does that make sense? Yep. Got it. And yeah. you know, so right now, you know, you don't live in Massachusetts anymore, right? You are in no. the literal other side of the world right now. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about that journey and why you decided to move there. Yeah, sure. A lot of people get interested in this when they talk about international investing or how to invest internationally or, you know, what markets to choose. You know, so in 2010, I moved, yeah, I moved around in the U.S. quite a bit. Then in 2010, I was living in um, North Carolina. I started buying properties remotely, virtually. So I would buy a property that I never personally, Nathan, physically walked into. So I would do this often. I would do this a few times a month, three to four times a month. And I was buying properties. Some I was flipping, some I was holding and then lease optioning out. And I never physically stepped in the property. And then I started doing it the next state over, Georgia and so on and so forth. Well, in 2013, I traveled a little bit and I went to Uganda, Uganda, Africa to go meet a a pen pal, a friend of mine. And when I got here, that's where I am right now. When I got here, I literally, I was here for two weeks. I literally fell in love with the culture, the environment, just that culture. There's like a vibe here. It's so unique. And uh, I, I, I was amazed at, out of all the places I've ever lived in, Sean, the, the most craziest part is that this is the most growth I've ever seen in a real estate market. I, I was just in, shocked at how many buildings are being built all at the same time. That's impressive to me. So what I decided to do after those two weeks I was here, I went back to the United States and I sold everything I had and I moved to Uganda 30 days later. That's crazy. Um, what, were your, you know, what were your family yeah, thinking yeah. when you did that? You're like, what? What are you doing? Why is he doing that? Family, yeah, yeah, yeah. Family and friends were a little like, what? Like, you know, personally, uh, Africa was never in my mind to even travel to. And I've traveled all over the world. And I never even considered Africa as a destination. So for me, it's like, why would I go to Russia? Just It just wasn't for me. But when I got here and I felt the vibe, my family, I went back and they're like, wow, really? And I'm like, yeah, and I'm engaged. <laughs> you know, I got engaged. I was like, I was, I was on a roll all within 60 days, Sean, all within 60 days. So I came out here and um, I, I settled here and, um, and I continued. I was wondering, can I still buy property r- virtually remotely uh, being eight to nine hours ahead of the West, you know, eight to 10 hours ahead of the West? And I still do it today. Um, I know I don't live here all the time. I do travel. I go back to Portugal. I'm also a Portuguese, uh, Portuguese citizen. Um, so I buy stuff in Portugal as well. But when I share this with people, the biggest questions that come up for me, bud, is, you know, you know, how do you invest internationally? How did that, how would you even consider those things? You know, 
so that's that's how I got here, <laughs> and uh, I love it here, man. I love it. It's it's the there's such a nice vibe here. It's really nice. So where would you say you are investing in now? Do you focus mostly in Uganda, or do you invest here in the states, or over in Portugal? Um, it's it's probably it's if I was to give percentages, it's probably like a a fifty percent, um, or I would say sixty percent U.S. You know, maybe thirty and ten in Uganda, ten percent in Uganda. Done a bunch of stuff in Portugal,、um, but most of the stuff is U.S. because I'm very familiar with the markets.、Uh, maybe those percentages would would change recently. One thing I will tell you this, Bud, is、um, you know Portugal is a、uh, socialistic country, and let me tell you, socialism will choke the life out of an economy, like the life out of an economy. So I, I you know, my family immigrated from Portugal to the United States, one of the most capitalistic countries in the world. And、um, growing up in the U.S., you don't realize it because you're, you're you live in the environment, so you don't realize it. But when I was living in Portugal for a number of years, I really felt what socialism can do to an economy. There's high taxes, there's high regulation. It's it's really unfortunate, actually. Culturally, you can see what it does, and and Europe Europe is a good example of that. There's many other countries, of course, that you know、uh, socialism you know、uh, breeds, but. Um, I would say, man, it made me feel a lot more grateful for、uh, a capitalistic country. And so, Uganda is very capitalistic, also,、um, very entrepreneurial country. So, I appreciate those markets more. And I would say my percentages in Portugal are going down than they were before. So, for the deals you do in Portugal and Uganda, like, how does that regulation differ from the United States? Oh yeah,、uh, that's a good point. So I would say the the biggest things when it comes to Portugal is taxes are a lot different. So example, let me give an example. Have you ever you know borrowed money on a credit card or a mortgage?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So imagine you go to the bank to get a mortgage. They tax you on the money that you got from the bank, <laughs> right? So that's just an example. Yeah, it makes you laugh, right?、You're、like what? You just get a mortgage for like five hundred thousand. You get taxed on that money two times. You get taxed on it because number one, they charge like a tax fee just for getting the money. So that's their like, thank you for taking out a loan money. Okay. Then they tax you on your personal income because you just took out a loan. So they tax you twice.、Um, there's a lot of weird situations like that,、um, and when it comes to taxes,、um, regulation. I would say there's much more regulation in the United States. I think people may. Not realize that, or maybe take it for granted,、um, because there's a lot more organization done in the United States. The United States is very organized, so the more organized you have, the more regulation kicks in. For example, in Uganda, there's a lot less regulation. You could do almost anything you want. You have a piece of land, you could do whatever you want, almost whatever you want. Or if there is regulation, it's not very enforced very well. Hopes that hopefully that makes sense. So, yeah, it, it all depends on, on. I think what's most important is. Someone who's thinking about investing internationally or in a different place than they're used to is know about the taxes, know about the regulation and the laws that go into the, that market. Are you allowed to buy real estate as a citizen from a different country? Like, you know, like if if you're not Portuguese, can you go and buy real estate in Portugal? Okay, that's a great question. So,、um, actually, anyone in the world, pretty much, can go buy property in any other country. Okay, these these laws are pretty fluid. There are some little Steps sometimes. For example, in other countries, they may not allow you to buy it in your personal name, but you could buy it in a company name. So pretty much, this is how other countries, for example, in the United States, like I don't know, most people don't know this, but 
China owns most of the seaports in the United States. Most people don't have a clue, but it's not like one Chinese person buys that seaport. They buy it in a company name and vice versa. The United States buys a lot of properties abroad, people from the United States, but they buy it in a company. What can happen, what, what can be a mandatory in some countries, and every country is going to differ in this, you may be able to have it in a company name, but you need to have a citizen of that company as a board of directors or in the company. Okay, they need to be registered as a partner, or um, you know they need to have some kind of partnership within the company, some kind of shareholder. So that might be a regulation. It depends on the country. Yeah, I think like in Thailand, that's that's the case, right? You need someone that's from Thailand that needs to be a senior exactly. partner of this company you have. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no there's no stopping anyone from you know I'm sure there is some countries that I haven't looked into. You know, I think particularly like one, one place that reminds me is Kuwait. And gosh, I have, I have little experience on this, but I have a friend who's Kuwaiti. And I believe you can only be a, Kuwait, a Kuwaiti citizen to own real estate there. You know, something like that. So of course, there's some certain countries that have some certain things. But I think the majority, you know, as long as you maybe have a company with a citizen within that company, you should be okay. And what kind of deals are you doing? Like, are, are you wholesaling deals in Portugal or are you doing buy and hold? That's a great question too, because um, it all depends on the market. So Portugal is not very friendly to this buy, hold and flip model. <laughs> they're, they're just not, they're not into that. So Portugal is a very, because there's no cap, there's not a lot of capitalism. They're not into the fast paced, quick flip, right? Make money, make money. No, 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 no. That's more in the US. So Portugal is a lot slower. They have, they, they'll do things very old fashioned. They're just not into that. So I would say to answer your question, um, the majority of the stuff that I do now is a lot of buy and hold. Yeah, buy and hold for cash flow. I've been doing that probably for the past six years or so. Uh, buy hold cash flow. Just um, as like long term rentals, right? Normal rentals. Yeah, long term rentals. Yeah, long term tenants. Um, I do have short term rentals. We have a short term rental portfolio here in Uganda. We have a short term rental uh, and long term rental in uh, portfolio in uh, Portugal. And then in the U.S., we have a lot of um, owner finance properties. So we don't have any. Um, actually, we do have a few short-term rentals in in, um, in in the U.S. I just thought of that. But we we primarily have um, uh, owner finance, rent to own. I got a bunch of those in uh, in North and South Carolina. Mm. And like, how are you negotiating? Do you have like boots in the ground team in North Carolina and Portugal, and Uganda, or is all of yes? Yeah, no, teams are actually very important. Everything is mostly virtual. I will tell you this though, for for the assisted living project, it's a very big commercial building. Um, I had to be there. You can't just do all this stuff virtually. <laughs> you know, like if it's a big commercial property, you should put your eyes and feet, you know, on the ground and, and all that stuff. But most of the stuff I especially in the United States, I've done virtually. Um, so what I do is I have teams of people that go out there. Um, I have a small team in North Carolina small team in South Carolina. Yeah. They go out there and they, you know, review the deals. Um, if the numbers work, if the numbers work and the property matches our buying criteria, we go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about financing in different countries? Yes, I can. Um, the United States probably has the most capital incentives to get loans, right? So very loan driven, right? So any country that's growing rapidly or trying to grow rapidly is going to have a lot of debt. And so that's the United States. Uganda is a very cash rich country. 
um, meaning anybody who's buying a house, they're pretty much buying with cash. There's not a lot of credit here. They don't want to operate in credit. They operate more of in the cash society. So everything they're purchasing, cars, phones, everything is cash. Um, Portugal, I would say it's a mixture of the two, but the Portuguese regulation is very strict. They don't have a lot of capital to lend. And that's just because of the socialism. They're not capital driven. So they, they, they're not really like fluid with a lot of capital in the marketplace. So the way, the way to get capital in Portugal is through the government. So people rely on the government to give them the money to do their projects. Does that make sense? So instead of going to a bank, they get from the government directly? That's actually the way they fund. Let me give an example. You know, some people will go to a, um, like a bank or um, the, the SBA to go get a business loan. That's not the way things are done in Portugal. And I don't know about the other socialistic countries, but in Portugal, they rather you go directly to the government. The government will give you the money, but then they regulate your business very heavily and they tax it more than normal. So that's, that's a little different than compared. The government has more control um, than, than they would in a, in a, in a banking uh, capitalistic environment. And so have you found that the lack of financing in a country like Uganda makes the overall prices stay like lower? Like I guess as a counterexample, no. because yeah. that's yeah. not about the United States, right? Interest rates were yeah. super low for the past like two years, right? Down to 3%. And that made yeah. real estate prices boom even more because people got access to easy yeah. financing. Um, so right. I guess, yeah, go ahead and tell me about Uganda and how that's working with no finance. That, that's a good point. And, and I'll tell you a little about the rates here in Uganda. For example, the savings rate. So if you put your money in a savings account, your interest rate is 13%. Two. In the United States, it's like, yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need stocks. You don't need the stock market here in Uganda. Just put your money in a savings account. But the, the, in the United States, it's like 0.01, you know. Then in, in the lending world here at the bank, if you go get a loan, it's like 17, 18% interest, okay? So it's, um, th- there is capital, uh, but most people, it's just part of the culture. Most people don't want to go to a bank. They'd rather pay cash for something than be in debt to a bank. So it's, very, it's more of a culture mindset rather than you know, having someone take ownership. That's, it's starting to change here a little bit because of the Chinese they're doing a great job. Um, and I, I'm so glad they've actually, I saw them starting to come in. The president of China, the president of Uganda came together back, I think I want to say 2016 off the top of my head. And they have a new agreement that, you know, is just going to revolutionize the country. Every time China steps in, um, you know, just things grow. Uh, and we we're already seeing that because they developed the roads very quickly. They're build. this is what I was telling you earlier. They're, they're now building buildings better, faster, more quality. Um, it's just evident. You can see there's an, there's an imprint in that society and it's, it's really booming up the economy. What are kind of like the major businesses in Uganda? Major businesses are um, agriculture, food. The, the soil here is probably, you know, I, I always hear this from a few buddies of mine. They're in the coffee business and they always say, hey, um, did you know Uganda has the best coffee in the world? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I've been hearing about that. I have a few buddies in the coffee roasting business. And they're like, oh, I want to get some. And I'm like, good luck. The reality is it's very hard to, um, the, the cost of exporting coffee from Uganda is very expensive. So it, does, it would cost like $9 to get a cup of coffee from Uganda. But yet it tastes way better than anything else. The soil here is very rich. It's a tropical environment eco, ecosystem here. So um, the soil here is very rich. So food, 
there is an abundance of food here, an abundance of food. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. <laughs> it's like, wow. wow. <laughs> I don't think it, and, and you know, it's, it's farm, what do they call it? Farm to table. You know what I mean? Yep. It's not like you know, the grocery stores are everywhere. No, this is like fresh from the farm right to your table. It's, it's just an abundance of it though. Okay. Got it. And yeah. can we talk a little bit about 13% interest rate to the bank? Like how are they able to provide <laughs> that? Are your, is your like inflation there? Like just crazy high as well? Or like what's, what's going on with that? No, no, actually prices here have been low for a long time. For as long as I've been here, um, they've been pretty much the same. This, the, 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 the conversion rate has been the same. So like, for example, uh, fourth, the, the currency exchange, one euro, or I'm sorry, one USD is 3,500 shillings. And it's been that way for like eight years. It hasn't changed. The currency has pretty much maintained the same. So there hasn't been any inflation. I would say a few, few things got more expensive during COVID times, but everything's kind of really remained the same recently as things started opening up. Um, but no, cost of cost of living is cheaper, obviously, and, and cost of goods. You know, I don't know. The best way I can compare it, bud, is if you, you, you know, you let's say you went out for dinner for two, with a bottle of wine in the United States. I mean, what does that run you these days in your area? 50, 60. 50-60. Okay. Here that here that's like 25. Okay. okay. Same place, really nice. 20, 25 bucks. Okay, you want to go high-end luxury? 50 bucks. And in the US, it'd probably be like 250. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the difference, you know. Dude, so what's what's preventing someone from just moving their money to Uganda and like parking there for a couple of years? Well, that now, that's a good question. I thought about that in the beginning. That's actually, they don't allow that. So the Ugandan government, I believe it, I'm not sure actually, I'm not sure if it's the Ugandan government now or if it's the United States, they don't allow you to park money in their banks like that. Now, if you're, if you're living here and you become a resident or a citizen, that's no problem. It's a little different, but they don't allow foreign money to come in and park their money just because of that interest rate. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. You have to so have there are right there. And you yeah, can, there's totally. probably a limit too with how much you can bring in every year or something like that. Cause like, that's what happens in China. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. So there are limitations to, um, especially if you're a U.S. citizen, most people don't know this, but as a U.S. citizen, you're taxed globally. No matter where you live in the United States, you are taxed everywhere you are, no matter where you are. Um, the, the only thing is, um, is in certain countries, they have like these different regulations. When you move certain amount of money out of the United States, they want to know about it. The United States wants to know where your money is, where it's going, how much is going. So uh, they're, they're pretty keen on that stuff. And let's go to Portugal now. Like what does financing look like in Portugal? Are you still putting 20% down and what are typical interest rates, et cetera? Yeah, typically. Okay. So when it comes to like escrow deposits and all that, typically 10% down. Um, the interest rates are very low. This is where a lot of people don't understand, um, you know, or, you know, I'm not maybe aware of. So Portugal has almost negative interest rates, kind of like Japan, where now we're, you know, we're seeing probably like 1%. I just took out a commercial loan in the US, it probably would have been 6%. I took out a commercial loan. It was uh, 1.8. 1.8. In the US, it's like six. So now the savings rate in, in Portugal is very low as well. So it's not something you want to park your money in. It's, it's probably, I can't even remember. I don't even remember. Maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe 0.8%. It's really low like the United States, but lending rates are very low. For example, the mortgage rates that like you talked about earlier are like three, 4%. Remember three, four, five right now, somewhere between three and five. Uh, in Portugal, it's um, 0.9% or 1% for a residential mortgage and they're 40 year loans. 
they're not 30 or 20, they're 40. Yeah. And is it still like 10% down or 20% down? It's not so much down. It's actually, you need 10% as a deposit to put the property under contract, but you don't actually, you don't need to put down down payments. Uh, Portugal, they don't need like 30% down. And what they look at is they look at your income and they look at how old you are. So for example, if you're 60 years old, they're not going to give you a 40 year loan because you're probably going to be dead by then. So they actually, if you're 60, and I'm just giving a hypothetical example, if you're 60, they're only going to give you a loan to live. I think it's like 75. Um, and your loan amounts can only go so high. So they do regulate that. But yeah, it's a little different. You don't, they, they're not doing so much of the, they'll do it a little bit, depending on the deal, especially commercial, they'll do like 30% down. Uh, but residential, a lot more flexibility. For example, the, the bank will actually, um, if, if it's like an REO or bank-owned property, they'll give you the house. They'll even give you the money to fix it up and you have no money down, six months free interest, as long as you fix up the property and move into it. So they give those incentives too. And you have to be like a citizen of Portugal to get to qualify? No, no. That's a little caveat there. A lot of people don't know this. There's, there is some great, uh, Portugal has a great visa program. It's called the Golden Visa. So you can actually get um, a visa, Portuguese visa, that allows you free travel in and out. If you invest, there's different levels. There's a $350,000 level, which is the lowest. And that is if you buy a, re, a property that needs to be rehabbed. And the bank will give you also give you money um, for the property. So it needs to be worth the 350. That's one level. There's a 500,000 level and there's a 1 million level. The 1 million level, honestly, the easiest, all you do is park money. Um, you just wire money to a Portuguese bank of 1 million euros. You let it sit there for one year and you can become, well, I don't, there's a few details to that, but basically you can get your golden visa, you know, pretty much right away. Um, and then it's a little bit of faster pace to citizenship. It's crazy. So, I mean, yeah. my, my fiance went to Portugal like two years ago. She loves it there. Nice. She met some New Yorker businessman who, own, who opened his own like, um, like a food court thing with like oh. um, containers or whatever. It was really cool. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, man, I would love to run an Airbnb there in the future. So I guess tell us like from someone that's yeah. from the U.S., we have some funds. How do we go about buying an Airbnb in Portugal? Yeah. So this is a great, I'm glad you mentioned this because I get asked this all the time, bud. Like people say, well, I, I would love to invest internationally, but I don't know how to get started. The first thing I tell you is have a connection to the area. Like you can't just say, oh, I want to invest in Moscow because I saw it in a movie. You know, no, you, you have to invest in a place that you either go to frequently, like you've traveled there, you've been there multiple times, or you think about like maybe retiring there, or it's a place you want to, you go every year. That's the first thing. So find a place that you really love or frequent. So I love what you said. Your fiance has been there. You know, maybe you guys have a love for it. You go there twice a year. That, that I would say. Then what you do, you buy the property. There's different incentives. Get a real estate lawyer. Get a local real estate lawyer. Get a local accountant to know the laws and know the tax regulations there. And then buy the property and then just get a property management to rent it out when you're not there. That's a great way to get started internationally. And then, you know, I, I've done that with numerous properties in Portugal. And then the more often, because I started having more kids, I started frequenting going back to Portugal to, to reunite with my family. So it was just easier for me to even invest in Portugal because I was there more often. So I would say that's, you know, in a, in a summary, if you're going to invest internationally, make sure it's a place that you you know, got connection. And not that you have family there. I want to make that clear. A lot of people say, oh, I have a cousin 
I have a relative that lives there. Let me buy something there so they can help me. Don't do that. Don't do that. Never rely on family. Like take care of stuff for you. Just, just buying a place that you know that you love or you frequent. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess another thing is I'm kind of curious about what typical deals look like in Uganda and Portugal. Like what are typical deal sizes, typical rents? Yeah. So, you know, here's the thing. Portugal is a booming expat community. Okay. There's a lot of people who are relocating out of Canada, the UK, any place that seniors, there's, there's a, there's what's called a silver tsunami that's upon us. And that is the retirees. Okay. They're just, there's two, two waves. There's the retirees and the seniors, and then there's the millennials. Okay. So that's more of our category. We want to travel more. We want to go different places. We rather travel and have experiences than settle down in one particular area. So I think those are two great industry, two niches. Um, in Portugal, I'm in a tourist area. So that place can, is rented out consistently. Uh, in Uganda, it's not so, there is tourism, but in the capital where I'm pretty much located, um, there's a lot of people who come here for work. They work for six months to a year or longer. So those people, their companies pay for long-term rentals. That's a great market because you know, it's, it's, you're getting higher rental return on a long-term market, which is really a long-term tenant, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. So they're like fully furnished rentals from people who are there for work. Fully furnished. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Fully furnished. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about like purchase price and expected rent. You know, that's going to vary. Um, that's going to vary. I think what is a good, um, you know, what, what, what we like to shoot for, uh, if you can make, if you can walk away with 30% return like that, I think you're, I think you're positive. I think you're good there, you know, with all expenses taken care of. Um, however, you know, each market's going to be different. For example, right now, Portugal, um, Portugal has cheaper properties than Uganda. Right now in the capital, I mean, prices here <laughs> are just the land itself in this market is over $200,000. So it's, it, you know, in Portugal, you can still get land for like $20,000, $50,000 in the capital. In the capital here, good luck. I mean, you, the closer you get to the center of city, you're looking at land, just land for $2 million. <laughs> just like one acre lot, $2 million. Um, it's, it's, it's going through the roof. So I don't, I don't, it's kind of hard for me to answer that question because I could tell you what I've done, but it's hard. Like the markets are very different. Uganda is a booming economy. Portugal is a slow moving economy. So if you don't mind slow and steady Portugal, if you want a fast economy, a lot of capital moves quickly, you could turn properties over. Appreciation is going up a lot faster. Uganda is a, a booming economy for that. So maybe let's go over like a example of a typical single family home. And let's say you do want to rent on Airbnb. Um, sure. I understand there's definitely variations everywhere, but are we looking at like yeah. a $200,000 price tag, $300,000 price tag for a home and it rents for like 200 a night or like what, what are those numbers look like? Yeah. So depending on the location, I would say in Portugal, you're pretty much, um, you're pretty much anywhere between 200,000, maybe 250 to maybe as as 500,000, like if it's on the water, you know, cause you know, you got the coastline there. So if you're on close to the water, you're probably looking at 500,000. Some properties are a million dollars per night, probably 250, 300 a night. I, I would say on average in Portugal is what I've seen, 250, 300 a night on those nice. markets, those the high-end markets, yeah. And then in Uganda um, for short-term rentals, it depends actually. Um, 
gosh, I mean, I see rents right now. I just, I just heard of a three bedroom, uh, two bathroom house, uh, 3,500 a month, you know, and it's not downtown, <laughs> you know, nice, nice property, but it's not downtown 3,500 a month. I would say typical properties here are single family house, three bed, two bath. They, they actually don't do three twos here. They do three threes. That's more common. They do three threes. And I would say that pretty much runs you about 400,000 on average. Okay. Yeah. So 400,000 and on a long-term basis, it's 3,500 per month. But what about if you do yeah. it like a fully furnished or if you did short-term on that one? Yeah. So short-term would probably be around, I would say yeah, about a hundred, maybe 110 a night. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you can negotiate. That's one thing that's really good here. It's kind of, kind of in the culture. Uh, people negotiate all the time. So, you know, you may have even something on Airbnb or booking.com and people will message you say, Hey, you know, can I get a better deal or something like that? You know, so that, that kind of, it's part of the culture. Yeah. Nice. I mean, this is all super interesting stuff. Like, I, I very rarely have people who invest internationally here. I mean, you actually live in Uganda sure, sure. too. It's really cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. about all these different experiences. I mean, I think people should sure. definitely look into it. Um, of yeah. course, like I, I personally think that you should probably look into it after you've already set up a good base of business and this so is kind true. of like an extra credit kind of thing. <laughs> Right, it's probably yeah, not so something true. you do for so your true. first foray into real estate investing. No, 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 no. <laughs> to, to be clear, I've been investing for 15 years, and the last five, six years has been internationally. Makes sense. So, Nathan, thank you again so much for being on the show today. Um, how can people find Which out more about you? Sure. Yeah, I have a I have a consulting company where I help. You know, over the years, like I was telling you at the beginning, uh, you know, I struggled with getting started. So, I my way of giving back to people who are real estate beginners, um, they can type in Google, just type in "fearless millionaire." And that's a brand I built for the past 10 years, helping people get started in real estate. So anybody who's starting, you know, real estate beginner, trying to close their first deal, they can go there and check it out. YouTube, Facebook, uh, the website. Yeah, you can go there. Perfect. Well, Nathan, thank you again so much for coming on the show and I hope to see you again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.